The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. As we come to God's Word this morning, you will notice that we are looking at Psalm 139 and not at our current series on the Sermon on the Mount. I think outside of Christmas and Easter, it is probably a rare thing for pastors at a church to, to depart from a current series and address an issue because it's been brought up by our national calendar in some way. But I was talking with Dr. Rogers before he left on sabbatical, and I asked him about Sanctity of Life Sunday, and he encouraged me to preach on the subject today, both because of the importance of the issue in our day, and also because it's been so long since he had addressed the subject in the pulpit. So I would ask that you would turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 139. We'll read the whole psalm as we consider this topic this morning. Hear God's word to us. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your knowledge upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred and count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, you have given us this word. You have spoken to us through your word. I pray that your spirit would apply it to our hearts and use it to enable us to glorify you and to become more and more like you. We pray this through Christ our Savior. Amen. 
I'm sure many of you have probably had the experience before where you walk into a group of people in the middle of a conversation and you're trying to figure out from the context and the, the phrases that you hear what the conversation is about. And if you're like me and you like to talk and you like to offer your opinion on things, you've probably also had the experience of jumping into that conversation before you actually knew what it was about. And someone in the group will say, yeah, that that has nothing to do with what we were just talking about. It's a really humiliating experience. Well, when we want to talk about a subject that comes up in the middle of a psalm, like this one, we could jump right in with verses 13 and 14 and talk about the sanctity of human life. But just like jumping into the middle of a conversation, if we did that, we would miss the context and the importance of this psalm's context, comments. So if we're going to understand this psalm's theology of human life accurately, we have to approach the topic in the same way the psalm does. And that means by starting with verse 1. So this morning as we look at this passage, I hope to consider first who God is from verses 1 through 16. Then look at what this means for human life and then conclude with three specific applications for issues regarding the sanctity of human life. Would you join me then as we start by looking at who God is? Verses 1 through 16 of Psalm 139 are a joyful meditation on the wonder of God. They're a a tour, if you will, a very brief tour through three of some of the most incomprehensible aspects of the greatness and the majesty of the God that we worship. If you follow the verses, verses 1 through 6, talk about God's perfect and complete knowledge of everything. My guess is that whether in high school or college, at some point many of you have read George Orwell's novel, 1984, in which the government's secret telescreens are popping up in bedrooms. They know what everyone's doing everywhere. But God's knowledge dwarfs the knowledge of Orwell's big brother. Because God not only knows our every standing up and sitting down, according to verse 2 here, God actually discerns our thoughts from afar. In fact, he even knows every word we're going to speak before we realize we're going to speak it. This is an intimate level of thorough knowledge of everything about us that God has for each one of us. And this level of intimate knowledge that God has for us is either devastatingly frightening Or it's thoroughly comforting, depending on where our relationship with God is. But either way, this level of knowledge, this knowledge of everything, has to amaze us. And that's what it does for the psalmist who ends with verse 6, saying, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Well, verses 7 through 12, then, tell us that God is perfectly present everywhere we are, so that we are never outside of his care. David asks the rhetorical question in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? And of course, the obvious answer to that question is nowhere. I can go as high as I can to the heights of the heavens. I can go as low as I can to the depths of Sheol. I can go as far east as I can to the wings of the morning, to as far west as I can to the uttermost parts of the sea. But whether I go up, down, east, west, light, dark, there is nowhere I can go that I am outside of the close presence of our God. This theologians call the omnipresence of God, that he is everywhere and always with us. And again, this deep presence of God everywhere is threatening to us if we just want God to leave us alone. But it is precious to us if we are his people and need his care. 
And that is where the psalmist is. The psalmist says that this infinite presence of God is the greatest comfort and greatest joy that we could ever experience because we never, anywhere, ever are outside of his holding and leading hand. Precious thoughts. Verse 13 through 16 then say, well, if, if God knows us so thoroughly and if God is with us all the time, how can this be? How can we understand this? Well, we know we can't understand it fully. But verse 13 starts with a little word, for. And that means that these verses are going to offer maybe a little bit of an explanation of how it is that God can know us so thoroughly and so completely. And these verses tell us that God, as it turns out, is the one who actually knitted together every single molecule of who we are. From the very beginning in our mother's womb, God is the one who formed us, fashioned us, shaped us. And it wasn't just the beginning. He's with us even to the end, knowing every one of our days before they happened. In other words, I think you should hear the psalmist saying, of course God knows everything about you. He made everything about you, and he is with you every single day of your life, for he planned it from beginning to end. As I was reading these verses, I was thinking back to playing hide-and-seek with my older kids when they were three and almost two. We played hide-and-seek in our basement, and my kids loved this for a little while, but it quickly became incredibly frustrating for them because I immediately found them no matter where they hid. And there were a couple things, I think, at play here. One, of course, was that our basement was fairly small, so I was always with them. I could just spin around and see everything in the basement. There was also, of course, a mysterious level of knowledge that I had. Because for a three-year-old, if they cover their eyes and can't see you, you, of course, must not be able to see them. And yet somehow, I could. But there was a third factor that was really the trump card. The third factor was the fact that I actually finished our basement myself. So I knew every square inch of the basement. There was no hiding place they could possibly find that I had not made. And so it was a frustrating experience for them. But I think that this experience of my three-year-old is just a tiny picture of our experience with God. It's this tiny picture of what the psalmist is saying here when he says, God, you know me completely. You are with me. You are with me everywhere. And no wonder... Because you made me, and you are completely sovereign over me, and you are always with me. These are the truths about God that David discusses. But I hope that as you read this psalm, and as we read it, you were listening not just to the words, but you also heard the tone and the emotion of this psalm. Because it should be immediately evident that David's goal in writing this psalm is, is not to write some kind of theology textbook that tells us a few facts about him, like, well, God knows everything, and God is everywhere, and God created things. That's true. But this psalm, fundamentally, is a personal meditation on these truths about God. It's a personal meditation that leads the psalmist to be amazed at God and to break out in worship of him over and over You see this in verse 6 where the psalmist talks about God's knowledge and then he breaks off and worships. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. You see in verse 14 where he talks about God creating every human being and then he breaks off and says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And you see it again in verse 17 when he finishes this discourse on who God is and he says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. 
If you read this psalm carefully, you should hear the psalmist going back and forth between thinking about God and then breaking out in praise of God. He thinks about who God is, and then he has to stop and praise God. And that's what it should be always like for us. It should always be the case that when we consider our God and who he is, we have to stop and begin to praise him. Because confessing and admiring the infinite and glorious character of our God is the heart of what worship is. I pray that we would never lose that back and forth of considering God and worship. And it's once we've begun to grasp the psalmist's joyful, awe-filled praise for the holy majesty of God, once we begin to understand that, that we can then understand the psalm's implications for the sacredness of human life. Let's look specifically then about what David says about human life in verses 13 through 16. I'd ask you to notice a few things. First, notice that the key point of this psalm is not just that life is sacred. It is rather that God is perfect, holy, and glorious. Humans have worth and dignity not just because humans are awesome, but because of God who created humans. Human worth and dignity is not because of who humans are, but because of who God is who created them and then stamped his image upon them. I think we think this way about plenty of things in life. Probably many of you would know that a Stradivarius violin is almost universally considered to be one of the best violins ever made. And I'm constantly puzzled by this or amazed by this, that with all of our technology today, we still can't seem to make a violin better than a violin made by a guy several centuries ago. But I was reading an article this past week that was discussing why a Stradivarius violin is so valuable and so much better than other violins around and the author mentioned that there's lots of proposals. Some people said, well, it's, it's the density of the wood that the, the violin is made of. And others have said, well, it's, it's the unique shape of the violin. And others say, well, no, it's the, it's the size and shape of the F that's carved into the violin. But the author of this article, he ended this way. He said, people may debate the exact dimensions and ingredients and design that helped make a Stradivari violin one of the best in the world. But there's one thing that we all know and can all agree on. This man, Antonio Stradivari, was behind it. The violin's quality and value came from his genius. That's what the psalm is saying about human life. God is the genius behind human life that gives it its value. I put a few quotes by R.C. Sproul in the reflection section at the top of your bulletin, and I hope you consider that. I love what R.C. Sproul says here. He says, human life is not sacred in itself, but because God made it. We don't proclaim merely the sanctity of human life, but the infinite holiness of the God who made humanity and thereby proclaimed it sacred. And I hope you hear that this is not relegating the sanctity of human life to a lower level. This is actually elevating the value and dignity of human life because they are rooted in the very holiness of God himself. The very honor and majesty of God is what gives human life its value. So we notice this, that humans, human life's value comes from its creator and the holiness of who God is. Notice also that this psalm does not make human life sacred in an abstract way, as if humans are sacred in a general form, or humans in general uh, are, are valuable and have dignity. 
It makes each individual human life sacred because God formed each human being. He knitted each man and each woman in his mother's womb, and he crafted each of their days before they came to pass. I love how David writes these verses and read them carefully. If you read them carefully, you hear that David does not say, well, you know, God knows everybody and he made everybody. He says it personally. He says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. You wrote my days in your book for me before they happened. See, God's knowledge of David and his presence with David and his care for David, the stamp of his sovereign control and creative authority is found from the beginning to end of David's life. And just as it is found individually in David's life, so it is the case for each individual human being. This passage teaches not only the sanctity of human life, but the value and dignity of each human life. Well, then notice also, that just as God's holiness and majesty gives human life its sacred dignity, so also human life's complexity and dignity bring the psalmist right back to praising God again. This is always the relationship we should have between considering God and considering his works. Considering God invests his creation with wonder and dignity, And then considering his amazing creation leads us right back to gazing at him and giving praise to him. It's a cycle of praise to God and amazement at his creation, which leads us back to praising our God. One commentator who was looking at this passage in light of the sanctity of human life says it so well when he says, how awe-inspiring is the birth of a child? Many of you know that firsthand He says, to think upon it is to begin to realize, at least to an extent, the greatness of the God who can create and bring life into existence. In fact, he says, to witness and to ponder conception and birth is to be ushered into the presence of the author of life himself. And who can stand in that presence and not worship? Isn't that a beautiful picture of how we respond As we confess the sanctity of human life, we are ushered into the presence of the Creator Himself. And I pray that we would never lose this relationship between God who gives His creation its value and dignity and His creation which points back to His praise. Well, each human life is fearfully and wonderfully made by its Creator. Its value rests on the knowledge and care its God invests in it. I want to spend the remaining time we have together considering some applications of this psalm. As you leave the sanctuary today, you're going to receive a handout from our Sanctity of Life ministry. And I love how this handout highlights the fact that the sanctity of human life encompasses a huge number of issues. Issues from birth to death. Issues of individuals and of races. Aspects of our life on a daily basis and on a grand political scale. And there's no way that in our time together we can consider all of the applications that the sanctity of human life has for us. But I want to consider three particular ways that the sacredness of human life should impact our thoughts and actions. And I realize that even bringing up three different applications is still a lot for us to consider. And so I would pray that perhaps we would would jot down some thoughts, hear these questions, and let them roll around in our minds and hearts this week as we would consider how God would want us to respond. So issue number one, 
two days after the annual March for Life in Washington, D.C., these verses have to shape our, heart, our hearts on the issue of abortion. I think it's impossible to read these verses and read who God is and how he has created each person and not immediately think about this monumental issue that faces our culture today. I think it's easy, perhaps, for many of us to be lulled into an acceptance that abortion is it's just the way things are in our culture these days. Or to think that perhaps it's a voting issue, but not something that's around me or impacting me on a daily basis. I want us to remember a few things. First, I want us to remember that killing a baby in a mother's womb destroys the creative work of the all-glorious God. And marring God's creation is nothing less than an attack on the character and holiness of God himself. If an artist pours himself into a work of art and creates a masterpiece, and I come along and throw black ink across the painting, I haven't just destroyed a painting. I've also attacked the honor and dignity of the artist. That is at stake with abortion. As God's people, we should be grieved at this affront to God's majesty, and we should not be silent in speaking against this great evil. We also need to remember that sin leads to pain. God's laws are his wisdom for a life of flourishing, and sin always leads to suffering. So while you may hear, and I may hear, many trumpeting freedom and choice regarding abortion, there are many others who are discovering the actual pain that it causes in the lives of everyone involved. Abortion is not just a political issue. It's a personal issue. And you and I have opportunities to minister the grace of God to hearts that are hurting from the brokenness of sin. And then we need to remember that Christ's forgiving blood covers all sin. Abortion is not just a general sin out there. It is a sin in the lives of real people. And I'm confident that there are those with us this morning or those here who know someone close to them who are still struggling and grieving with past choices. And so we need to know and hear that if we trust the Lord Jesus Christ, abortion fits with all other sins of which God says to us, yes, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Abortion is an issue we should care about, not in the political abstract, but for the glory of a holy God and for the lives of the babies he creates and for the lives of those who have been impacted by this issue. We'll consider another second application in a very different way, perhaps. We need to remember That the sanctity of human life and our our sanctity of human life ministry, I think, says it so well when they say that we need to talk about the sanctity and dignity of human life. Because biblical truth does not just mean that God's creation should not be killed. It also means that they should be treated with love and respect as holy images of an almighty God. On Monday of this past week, Martin Luther King Jr. Day reminded us and our nation that racism is still an issue facing us and facing the church. Some of you may know that a year and a half ago, the PCA's General Assembly adopted a resolution on racism, calling on churches to repent of racism in their history and in their current life. Maybe some of you are wondering where this statement comes from, but I assure you that deep racism still exists within Christian churches. In the last few weeks, as I've listened to pastors talk about this issue who are more familiar with it than I am, I've heard multiple stories of churches, even in our own denomination, who have either explicitly refused to be welcoming to those of other races or whose discomfort gave other races the impression that they were not welcome in that congregation. 
But even if we set aside perhaps more open examples, the PCA statement calls on churches to consider ways that each one of us may not be fully biblical in our responses to different races. It asks members of each congregation to examine their lives for areas where we may be participating in or turning a blind eye to our brothers and sisters of various races who are being oppressed or ignored or are still suffering. So maybe some of us could consider questions such as these. How have we stereotyped people made in the image of God and made assumptions about them rather than treated them as an individual? I can tell you that I've been here in Lancaster City and heard disrespectful and inappropriate assumptions about a man because of how he looked in his hoodie walking down the street. But I can't just point the finger because I'm guilty too. I can think of plenty of times where I have failed in this issue. I can think of a night where several men came to our house because we had sold an item on Craigslist. And there I was in my own home selling something for $20, and yet I was nervous and had all sorts of my thoughts racing in my mind because of how these two men looked and their skin color. And I'm ashamed to think about those stereotypes that were at play in my heart. Maybe we should ask this, how many of us are blind to ways some people are still suffering the consequences of past and current racism? Or maybe we even intentionally write off their cries as mere political statements. One thing I've tried to do lately is to listen to black PCA pastors who have talked about their lives. I've been convicted by my ignorance of what they experience and my uninformed assumptions that racism is a thing of the past. Maybe we should ask, in what ways do you and I act tribally? We prefer and tend to be with people who are like ourselves, and we make insufficient efforts to reach out to those of different races. Or in what ways have we unintentionally created communities and churches that alienate other races or are inherently uncomfortable for them because we just do the things the, do things the way we like to do them. I don't know the answers to all these questions. And I admit that I have only recently realized some of my failures in this area. But I hope we would all be willing to ask ourselves these questions and let the truth that the infinite holiness of God dwells with every individual of every race to shape our hearts and how we respond. Well, one final area for us to consider So we move perhaps from larger national issues to personal ones. I want to ask how Psalm 139 statements about the dignity of each person impacts how we treat one another on a daily basis. This is what I think James chapter 3 is bringing up when it asks us, With your tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we also curse people who are made in his likeness. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Consider the fact that the person that you are frustrated or angry with or the person you gossiped about or talked badly of behind their back or the person you belittled or got a laugh at their expense is someone shaped and fashioned by the holy God and knitted together in his womb bearing his image. And will we treat that person with contempt or frustration or anger? All of us, I think, have people in our lives that we just don't like. And we think that perhaps their wrongs to us justify or give us an excuse for not liking them or avoiding them. And yet will we go through life avoiding someone and not liking someone or bearing a grudge against someone or speaking badly or judgmentally about someone and not remember that that person bears the image of God? 
I love the way John Calvin put it. John Calvin said this. He said, we are not to consider what men merit of themselves, but we are to look upon the image of God that dwells in them, to which we all owe honor and love. You may say to me, well, that man has deserved something far different from me. But what has the Lord, whose image dwells in him, deserved of you? And that's, of course, exactly how Jesus treated us, isn't it? Jesus saw us not just as broken rebels running away from him, but as God's workmanship to be rescued, reclaimed, and remade so that we could again reflect the work of the glorious God who made us. And so the way we treat one another and speak about and to one another on a daily basis has to do with the image of God and the sanctity of human life. Today, tomorrow, Tuesday, and each day after, each person you and I interact with is someone fearfully and wonderfully made. And my prayer is that we will not think of the sanctity of human life as an issue for us to confront bad people out there, but an issue to confront our sins in here. I pray that it would be an issue that drives us individually and personally to our need for our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I think in the end, the way David concludes this psalm is the best way for us to conclude this psalm. And I would ask that perhaps you would turn to verses 23 and 24 and use these as your prayer as we finish this morning. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Our God, you are a holy and infinite and majestic and glorious God, and you have created human life in your image, investing it with sacredness, with dignity, with value. And I pray that not only would that lead us to praise you all the more as a great creator and God, but that it would also cause us to examine our hearts and see where we have failed to honor your image and your workmanship as you deserve and as the people you have created ought to be treated. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.